Everybody okay? Y'all sure? All right, good deal. I think so. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Is that what's where we're at? Good deal. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. Uh, I want to, in, in some sense, just kind of take off on what he's talk, talking about there. I mean, I uh, think one of the stats we saw with our missionaries, was able to spend some time with them, is to think of uh, 35,000 people, roughly, a day in South Asia alone die without having ever heard of the name of Jesus Christ. And so for us, in some sense, uh, it's not something we should throw our hands up at and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. There is stuff we can do. And there are, there's plenty that we can do for this. And it should, of course, break our heart for the advancement of the gospel if we truly believe that Jesus is the only way, which the scriptures make clear. And if we truly believe that someone must confess in the person and work of Jesus Christ, can you imagine anybody getting up into heaven and Jesus walking up and saying, let me introduce myself to you? You know, could, could you imagine that? Brother Nick, you down here, look at you tonight. I was waiting on the amen on that. Amen. amen. So uh, obviously we want to introduce Christ to them and be that vessel by God's grace that we can. And just to continue to be praying and, of course, be praying toward not just, uh, uh, not just helping in any way we can, but sending somebody. Maybe, maybe some of you. Maybe some of you have gotten to that time of retirement and you are looking for something to do. And by all means, you're just trying to fill your day, right, to not read the horoscope. You know what I'm saying? You're just doing your best not to read the horoscopes. You're doing your best not to keep up with days of our lives. My grandmother, godly woman she was, she watched days of our lives every single day after she retired. And I would watch it with her in the summertime, and I promise you, there was 10 years go by before I seen the episode, and I can come back and tell you exactly what was happening. <laughs> Just jump right in, back to the story, and it sucked you in, man. Call them the stories. But maybe some of you looking for something to do, what better way uh, to spend your life, even the later years, than by trying to take the gospel to somebody who has not heard. So we'll continue to pray that the Lord would raise up more workers even amongst us, and we'll be happy to love on you and send you that way and come visit you anytime we possibly can. If any of you in this room tonight desire to go somewhere to take the gospel to some people, I promise you, no matter what it is, I will come see you. Y'all see what I'm saying? I'll come visit you, and you can have time with me on the mission field. Anywhere you want to go, I'll be there, wherever it is. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Exodus chapter 25. Uh, we're going to continue in this. And, and, and man, I, like I said, all of God's word is good for us. And so we're going to look at this passage. We have left off uh, from Exodus. And, and if I can set you back in context really quick, we are still at Mount Sinai. Uh, the people have gotten there. God has demonstrated to them that he has saved them not to leave them and just send them about their way. He wants to dwell with them. Remember, that's the purpose. 
God has saved them so he could be with them. They are, they are his peculiar people. They belong to him. He wants to dwell with them. And that's actually what all of this is about at Sinai. When God calls them out of Egypt and saves them, he, he then gives them his law, his government, if you will. Here are the standards. If the holy God who created all things, is going to dwell with these people, then here is what will be required. This is how you have to live according to dwell with God, right? This is the, the rules that have to be there. This is the things. Because remember, this is not a negotiation process. They don't get to, to deal the contract how they want to and say, hey, we'll take this. Uh, you, can, you can have Sabbath rest because we like taking naps, but we want to be able to lie every once in a while, right? And the Lord says, okay. No, that's not how it works. The Lord says, this is how you will dwell if you're going to live with me in my presence. This is it. And remember, we talked about those commandments are for the good. This is not God trying to hold the people back from something that will bless them. These commandments are for their flourishing. This is how, this is how life would be best for you is to follow after these. And we've talked about a lot about that. Then, then after that, we go from the Ten Commandments, which become that basic standard of, of how they will live. We go to the next, to the case law, if you will. And he, he describes what it means to love your neighbor and love God and how you handle certain cases when they come up. And that's what we saw there in chapter 21 and 22 and into chapter 23. And in chapter 24, we saw the renewal of the covenant. We saw how they came back and the promises were made. And, and remember, God said, these are the words. Will you do them? And, and the people uh, said out loud, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do, right? And, and they committed themselves twice to keeping these, these rules and commandments. We commit ourselves to do it. It's reestablished. And then... The end of chapter 24, uh, having the Lord there on the mountain, it says that Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses now enters into that veil, if you will, into the presence of God. That's where we pick up in chapter 25. In chapter 25, really through chapter 31, we will see the uh, conversation that Moses has with the Lord. And the Lord gives Moses... His, uh, his kind of um, architecture, if you will. And that's what we're looking at this time. We're going to see the furniture, especially uh, as the Lord is going to describe to them what his dwelling place will be. If he's going to live with his people, here's what it will look like. So you'll see chapter 25 there going, going through chapter 27 will be the furniture. That's what we're going to try to discuss tonight a little bit. And then you get through 28, you get the priest's garments. And here's how the priests are to dress. And here's how they, what they are to do as my priest taking care of my house. In other words, you get to chapter 31. All of that is done and settled. You have this little 
uh, interlude where the Lord says to Moses, go down and get your people. Y'all remember we talked about that last time a little bit. Go down and get your people because as the Lord is giving Moses the, the description of how he is to build a house for him and how he's established the priests, remember what happens. While he's doing that, the people are down there making calves, right? Golden calf out of their gold. And so they're melting their gold and making a golden calf. And the Lord says to Moses, go get your people. Why? Because if they were God's people, they wouldn't be making a golden calf. Y'all see what he's saying there? And so go get them. And Moses has to do that. He goes down. And then at the end of chapter, uh, in, in Exodus there, after a brief little hiatus dealing with that, he goes back up on the mountain for the last five chapters. And he gets more, uh, it goes back up, and then they begin to uh, to carry out the orders that were given in the last, build the things that were asked, he was asked to build as he makes the tabernacle. All of that to be said is these last section of Exodus deals with the building of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with his people. And it's important because we're going to see several chapters on how this is done and how they carried it out. And so it's worth us to look at it tonight. And that's what I want to, to do, especially try to get these first couple chapters here with the, the furniture, if you will. So if we look at chapter 25, let's see how, let's see how this begins. Moses is on the mountain with the Lord in his presence. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves you, uh, moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, all, all for the lamps, spices, for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. Now, the Lord is telling Moses that everything you're going to need to build a house and a dwelling place for me, you already have. Everything you're going to need, you already have. The people already have it. Now let's go back and remember how the people have it. If you look back with me in Exodus chapter 11, because the question comes, these are people who were slaves in Egypt. Surely they didn't have gold. Surely they didn't have silver, much less some acacia wood. I don't even know what that is. And I think, I think I'm saying it right. And so here they're, they're, they're saying, where did they get all this as they've been traveled through? But remember what happened in Egypt. So in chapter 11, as the people are going to leave, uh, the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of their neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of his people. And so ultimately, and even down, remember, 
uh, as, as this last plague was coming, and y'all remember what that was, of course. Even down in verse 7, Not a dog shall growl against my people of Israel, either man or beast, that you shall, you shall know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In other words, as the people of God were leaving Egypt, what happened? God said, go and get the gold. Go and get the silver. You, the Egyptians, are not going to hold it back from you. You tell them, give me your gold and silver, and the Lord is going to place it on their heart to give the gold and silver, right? The dog won't even growl at you. Go get what you want. And so, in other words, as you're leaving out of Egypt, all the things you will need will be supplied to you. And the Lord is making it clear that he will make sure it's supplied. He'll use the Egyptians to make sure you have what you need as you leave. And so if you go back to chapter 11, you recognize that God has already provided all that they needed for them as they're going on this journey. With the, All they had to do was go ask for it. All they had to do was go get it, and it is theirs. And so when you get here at chapter 25, the Lord said, remember basically all that stuff that was provided for you, now I'm asking for them to give it. But what does God say? He says that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. The Lord even says that I want people to give because they have been given. Because they have a desire. They understand what's necessary. They want God to dwell with them, right? And so they give out of a heart's desire to see God's dwelling place built up and dwelt. And what I'm trying to get to here is that when we talk about generosity amongst God's people, we have to first recognize a very clear teaching that there's not one thing that we have that God has not already supplied for us. The, the, the blessings that we have, the things, the financial resources, the things, those are all ultimately provisions from God. And while we have received them from others, it's just like the Egyptians. God has turned it in such a way that he can make a promise. And his promise is that my people will never, ever go without. You see the birds, the sparrows, they have what they need. You see the flowers in the field, they have what they need. Ultimately, God says, I will provide every need for my people. And he uses the, the, the he gives us the gifts, he gives us the talents, he gives us the abilities, he blesses our work so that we are rewarded in these things. So Paul can ask in the book of Romans with a rhetorical question, Y'all know, y'all know what that means, right? That means he don't need an answer because we all know what the answer is. He says, what do you have that has not been given to you? And the ultimate, of course, answer is not a thing. God has given us. Generosity of the people of God comes from the beginning recognition that God has supplied everything we need and beyond. And beyond. Therefore, when a need is seen, for what God is calling us to do, we as a people give generously back for the purpose of the mission that is before us. And how does God want us to give? With glad and generous hearts. God will take it any which way you can. I'm just speaking for him right there. 
But God wants to give, wants you to give with a clear understanding that everything you have has been given to you from him. God wants you to give with a clear understanding that it's all his anyway. So therefore we give back knowing that it is our privilege to give back. It's our privilege to offer this up. It's a blessing to us to give this. So generosity begins with a baseline understanding that God has provided all of this, so we give generously when he asks. Ministry today still operates. Tell him you call him back later. Don't worry about that. <laughs> We're talking about giving. Generosity. Generosity today, ministry today, still operates with an Exodus 25 mindset. Today, even as we operate here in the church, we only can exist to reach people in our community, to change people for the gospel, to reach people in the nations who, who, who are desperate. for. We can only do that because of the generosity of God's people. We got almost 200 children downstairs right now being educated with the gospel. How can we pull that off? Only because of the generosity of God's people. We got a room full up here to hear that. How can we pull this off? Only because of the generosity of God's people. And so as we look here, I, it is, I am not a fan. Uh, Chris DeWeese is in here probably somewhere, and he, he wants me to be a bigger fan. I am not a fan of just talking about money all the time, right? Because it, there's this mindset. There's a lot of preachers that do it. They own TV. Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I don't want to fit into that category, man. I believe that we preach the generosity of God through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And we recognize how glorious and good he is. And then we proclaim the vision to reach as many people with that good news as we can. God will lay it on your hearts to give. Now, some of you might need to be spurned a little bit. <laughs> some of you might need to recognize that it is not your money or your finances that get you through every day. It's not your money or your finances that is protecting you for your retirement. It's not that at all. Because as we know, those things grow up in the morning. They're like a mist during the day. And while they're here in the morning, they're gone in the afternoon. And you can stack up the riches of this world, and that's nothing compared to the power and glory of God. And so while we know that, your security is not found in your retirement package. Your security is not found in your salary. Your security is found in knowing that you are in the hand of an almighty God who cares for his people. So ultimately, he's already teaching his people that lesson. We give for the mission to fulfill what God has called us to do. Fulfill what God has called us to do. Now, you saw that in chapter 11. Look over with me in chapter 36. Because I may have said this, I may have messed it up. You get the first part, he tells you about the furniture here. They have the little hiatus with the golden calf. We'll get to that. And then the next part, he talks about the building of the furniture. So in this section, you know, chapter 25, he's up on the mountain. But in Exodus 36, now I believe it's verse 3. 
starting with verse 3. He's coming down, and listen to what Moses called Bezalel, whatever, Oholiab, and every... We don't see many children named Oholiab anymore, do we? <laughs> I always laugh about that. People want Bible names and stuff. You know what I'm saying? We didn't want a kid to have a Bible name. I got a good one for you. Oholiab. And every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction. Do y'all see what he's saying there? He's calling them, they're craftsmen. How do they know how to be craftsmen? The Lord gave them the skill and the intelligence. All of that. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary, they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task for what he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work of the Lord as he had commanded us to do. Isn't that great? Man, I'd long for that. I'm not saying that as the preacher. But the resources that God's people have is more than enough to accomplish the task of reaching people with the gospel. More than enough. If we could just tap in to all of that, there's more than enough there. The Lord has given and provided it. It's there. And listen to what he says. I get, I love, I, this is not my favorite verse in the Bible. And I like them all. And so he comes down, he says, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. I don't know if I'll ever get to the point to say that. I don't know if I'll ever say, hey, that's enough. Y'all know what I'm saying? Don't give anymore. That's enough. For the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and the more. I'm joking because God has not asked us to give every little dime and penny. He's asked us to give what is on our heart to give to him generously. And it's more than enough. He's not looking to rob you blind of every little dime. He's not looking to take every little thing from you. He's just looking to fulfill what we've been called to fulfill and to do what we've been called to do, and he has given us more than enough. Now, I spent more time on that than I wanted to, but that was because Brother Nick amened me a couple times at the beginning and revved me up. So, The contributions have been called for. The Lord said the people have everything they need. Their hearts will be stirred. They will give it. They will give it. And verse 8 and 9 are important to this whole passage and and, and in some ways central to the book of Exodus itself. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture so you shall make it. The very heart of the book of Exodus is the fact that the Lord has redeemed his people out of Egypt and he wants to dwell with them. And he says, now it's time. He's called them out. He's got them to his mountain, Sinai. He has shown himself. He's given them the government regulations. Here's how you live according to this law. And now he's saying, now it's time to build me a house, a tabernacle, 
that I will dwell with them. Now, I told Mason I'd call on this earlier, but I, I, I'm going to show you. Mason, show them. There it is. Look at there. I'm trying to help y'all. This is what it would look like. Now, I'm going to stand in front of it so you probably won't be able to see it. But don't say I never gave you a slide. <laughs> Ultimately, what we see here is going to be the instructions for building this tabernacle. The Lord says up here to Moses, and we don't necessarily know. Some people have suggested the Lord just kind of laid out the plans in front of him. But I believe something else is happening here. Because if you look with me over to chapter 25, verse 40, you see there, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, he says here to Moses, and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. Ultimately, then, if you look over with me to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, I'm trying to get there before y'all, verse 5. He's talking about this again, and they serve. He's talking about these, this tabernacle, this temple, right? They, those things, those pieces of furniture, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Ultimately, I believe what's happened here is Moses gets a glimpse into heaven to see the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly dwelling of God, and he says, I need you to make a copy of this. And so here, he begins in Exodus 25, and he starts with the Ark of the Covenant. And all of you have seen the Ark of the Covenant. It was in a movie in the early 80s. And so it is there. And and, and he begins with this. But, but of course, the Ark of the Covenant uh, becomes the central piece of furniture for the people of Israel. It's a piece of furniture that's a, that's a box, basically. It describes it well. It's got the rings. You put the poles through it. You never take the poles out because when God moves, you got to move. And so you be ready to go anytime. And so he builds this Ark of the Covenant. And the scriptures tell us in Chronicles and in, 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 in the Psalms that the Ark of the Covenant becomes the footstool of God. And so what this Ark represents, as it's in that centerpiece there, you can see where it is, the most holy place. What the Ark represents is it represents the presence of God with his people. It's the footstool. The throne is in heaven. The footstool is on earth. It connects heaven and earth and the reign of God amongst his people. And so it, it, it is there and, and it carries with it that holiness. He's going to not only give instructions on how you build it, he'll get in, give instructions on how you carry it. How you can't, when you leave out of the most holy place, you got to cover that thing because no ordinary man can, can, can just look at it. And, and you remember how that ark represented the presence of God and how painful it was for the people of God whenever it was captured and taken away and the Philistines had it. And David said, I'm getting it back because of what it meant. We need God's presence here with us. And you remember how David got it back. And then you remember how that old Uzzah fellow, he felt like I got, we got it back. Let's show everybody, you know, let's show off this thing. But he forgot the regulations on how you carry it. Y'all remember that? And when he forgot the regulations on how you carry it, he didn't have it the way God had established. And when the, when the oxen stumbled and the ark began to fall, old Uzzah made a deadly mistake. He believed that his hand was cleaner than the mud on the ground. And he touched it and died instantly because it represents the presence of God. 
and nothing unholy can touch that thing. That's the ark. When the ark was led out before the people, it would go first. They would go behind it because God's presence leads the way for them. When the ark going into battle, the ark would be carried to the center because God fights for his people. The ark would become this important piece of furniture for them that represented the presence of God with his people and the tabernacle itself. Not only that, you, you, you come down, and before we even get to the tabernacle, I'll end with that. But you got the, the table for bread. The table for bread there. And this bread, look at verse 30. You build this table, you place it there, you see where it is in the holy place. You put it there. And when you build it, you place it there, you, it gives the instructions for it. And verse 30, you shall set the bread on the presence of the table before me regularly. In other words, you don't let the bread on the table get stale. Why is there a table in here with bread on it that you need to replace regularly? It's the same reason that he's going to have a golden lampstand in there because this is God's house. It's his dwelling place. You have a table, you got bread, you got a lampstand, you got his footstool. This is God's dwelling place. He's given the sense of I am a living God that's dwelling with my people here in the midst. And so he says, this, this is the dwelling place of God. You have this golden lampstand that is given. Now, notice here, what he says about this lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made on hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be on of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out the other side. What does this lampstand look like in the description? What's it sound like? A tree, right? It's got flowers. It's got branches. In the midst of the tabernacle here, in the midst of it, the presence of God and the lamp that's created, you're going to make this lampstand, and this lampstand is going to look like a tree. Well, that's not the only thing I think this is symbolizing. You see, the tabernacle symbolizes the presence of God. Y'all remember the last time the presence of God was with his people? Like this. It's called the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was when God was dwelling with his people. Remember? Simple little passage there before the fall, Adam and Eve walked with him in the cool of the day. He was present with them in the garden. And there in that garden of Eden, God's presence was there. But do you remember what happened in the garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned? They are sent out away from that tree because God says, we can't let them get back to this. This could be deadly for them. We can't let them get back to this. So there at the entrance of the garden, what did he put? Cherubim with flaming swords there. Well, if you read on here with this tabernacle, you find that they are to make a curtain that will be placed. And you see there's one here at the front. There's one here in the middle and what is on that curtain? Scarlet yarns, fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. In other words, there at the entrance, the cherubim will be seen again, guarding this entrance for God's people. Throughout the scriptures, God's presence will look like this. You have the, the, the garden, they're kicked out, and then God's coming back and this tabernacle in many ways is to look like a garden again 
with a tree in the middle of it, with, with the God's presence there dwelling. It looks like God dwelling with his people in this garden again. And here, ultimately then, this is pointing us to something with this bronze altar in it in the court of the tabernacle. You see all of that there. And they refer to this as the tent of meeting. This is where the people met God. This is where the people met God. This is where God dwelled with his people. This testifies to the special relationship that God had, the special relationship that he had with them. The tabernacle as God's residence will be seen throughout this passage. And so when God gets up and moves, right, what do they do? They fold the tent up, they get it all, and they move with it. They move his home, and they set it up again where he tells them to set it up when he stops. This is God's residence with God's special people. This is where they would meet God, the tent of meeting. This is where God's holiness will rest amongst his people. And the intensity of that holiness in that holy of holies, where that ark of the covenant is, where the footstool of the throne of heaven rests, that's where it is. That's where God dwelt with them. Now, throughout scripture, we understand this imagery here that continues. God doesn't do anything just to do it. It has a meaning behind it. It gives us a point behind it. And ultimately, these things are signs to us that we're looking for a fulfillment. We, we see that in the Old Testament. You, you see a lot of things that are signs. So signs have to be fulfilled with something, right? So you have sign, you have fulfillment. And, and, and what we find when we get to the New Testament that the fulfillment of this imagery is none other than Jesus himself. In John chapter 1, the people are longing to see the presence of God again. I mean, you've got it. You've got the, 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 the Garden of Eden lost, the tabernacle brought back in the wilderness. And then David's told, you'll build a house for me, but not you because of your sin. It'll be your son. And Solomon builds the temple, and that temple will be destroyed. And remember, the people wept over the destroying temple, so they came back, and they were able to rebuild the temple with Nehemiah and them again and build it back up. Why? Because that's where God dwelt with his people, and that temple becomes central to their worship. That becomes that. But what when Jesus comes, he tells them that God is not dwelling with you in a building any longer. He's dwelling with you in a person, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, we find God in a person, not in a place. All of these things here point us to the person. All of this point us to that one who dwells with us. And what Jesus says is that you're not excluded anymore from the most holy place. That veil has been torn through his death. And you are welcome in to eat at the table in the presence of God himself. That's where you're welcome. And by the way, we don't even need to light lampstand anymore. Because Jesus himself is the light. You see, all of this is fulfilled in Christ. It's all found there. And the reason why we look through this is because this teaches us more about Jesus. The reason why we talk about some of this furniture is because it teaches us, it gives us more idea of who he is and what he's fulfilled on our behalf. So John says, and, and I, I mean, there's so much in this and I'm skipping through so many things, I don't even know what I'm talking about other than the Bible here says, and the word, 
speaking of Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word became flesh and dwelt among us is that same word tabernacled with us. Tabernacled with us. Today, today we look to that mountain, right, in, in, in Israel, and we see the uh, in some sense, a sad situation. It's not the temple on the Temple Mount anymore. It's a mosque. And we sit there and go, that's bad. You know, I hate that. At the same time, I don't think God ever intended for that temple to stand forever. Because if it was still standing there, we may be tempted to think that we got to go there to meet Jesus. We may be tempted to uh, set that higher than the knowledge of Christ Jesus himself. We have to be careful with language is what I mean. In our own church and how we've done things, sometimes we get a little bit reckless, and I'm talking about myself. We speak about the altar here in our worship center, right? We speak about the sanctuary. My last church, Lake Murray Baptist, we worshiped in a gym. So we affectionately refer to it as the sanctasium. We speak about a sanctuary, a holy place set aside. We even say this is God's house. But I want y'all to know that's not an altar in there in front, of the, in front of the pulpit. I'm not trying to beat you up. Don't get mad at me. That's not an altar there in front of the pulpit. That's not God's house. It's only God's house when God's people are present there together. You see what I'm saying? There's nothing special. Now, don't get me wrong. I want people to respond. And hopefully when you hear me preach, I'm offering an invitation to respond to this message of the good news of Jesus Christ every single time. I want you to respond. And I'll stand down front to the day I die, hoping somebody might come that time and ready, willing, and able to accept them and bring them on up there. We want to talk about it. But there is nothing special about that little space in front of this pulpit. You see, Jesus isn't there and nowhere else. He's everywhere for us. His presence is so close. In fact, my old professor said that he, he's closer than our very fingertips. All we have to do is call on his name. So you may be in your bed at night. You may be in a disastrous situation. You may be in your car. You may be with a friend. You may be lost somewhere, can't find your way home. Wherever it is, all you got to do is call because that's where Jesus is. Because we don't find him in a location anymore. We don't find God there. We find him in a person. And the scriptures tell us that when we come to Christ, God himself dwells within us. And our own bodies become temples, the dwelling place of God. And Jesus said, that's far better for all of us. That's far better for all of us. When we look at the furniture, when we look at all these things, what I'm telling you just in a, in a brief 45 minutes, y'all thought it was longer. <laughs> what I'm telling you is Jesus is everything for us. He's the presence of God. He's where we feast on the bread of life. He's the light that is the lamp. He's the altar by which we go to and we lay ourselves down upon. 
It is Christ Jesus. He has fulfilled it all. We don't need a tent. In fact, Jesus told us that when I die, that curtain will be torn in two, right? And sure enough, the scripture tells us that. It was ripped in two. As Hebrews tells us now, all of us can draw near to him. It's not just the priest. It's not just one time a year on one day to offer up a sacrifice. It's any time. Through the blood of Christ and the sacrifice offered, we can draw near to the Lord. You want to know God's presence, you find his presence in Christ. You find the comfort that you have in his spirit dwelling in us. That's where we find it. And this picture that God gives Moses on top of the mountain as he looks into the heavenly places to see what that should look like, this picture is only enhancing our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's come to do with us, for us, in our place. I started this by saying we can't outgive God. Everything we have is a gift from him. And Jesus is everything. Before we talk about our money, before we talk about our lands, before we talk about our retirement, before we talk about anything else, the only thing holding you secure is that on the day you die, Jesus says, Father, that one is mine. He belongs to me. That's what holds us secure. He's everything to us. My retirement plan is Jesus Christ 401k. Y'all see what I'm saying? I came up with that one on the fly. Allison's over there saying we need to talk about this. The security, the presence of God is found in Christ Jesus. He's been gracious. God has been gracious to us, generous to us. And just as he supplied everything the people need to build him a tent, to build him a tent to be the presence of God, he supplied everything for us for the presence of God in his, in his son, Jesus Christ. So now he says, I need you guys. I'm asking you guys. I'm, I'm using the word need lightly there. I'm allowing you guys the privilege, the privilege to take the name of Christ to the deepest and darkest places of this world, to proclaim his fame. I'm allowing you that. I've given you everything you need to do that. I'm doing it all. Now give that name back to me by proclaiming it everywhere. You have all you need. Here the people had all they need, and they built a house and tabernacle for God. Now we have all we need, and God has built built all of that in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Christ. Help us to love him more every single day. For it's in his name we pray, amen, amen. amen. Thank you so much. We'll see y'all Sunday, Sunday.